I continue to believe Mr. Trump will not be president. Democracy will be met with fire and fury like the world has never seen. No hate, no fear. Immigrants are welcome here. No hate, no fear. We will have no choice but to totally destroy North Korea. And I'm going to say, I don't give a damn what they want. We're going to keep on winning, right? We're going to keep on winning. This is The Book Show on RTE Radio 1. I'm Belinda McKeown. I'm an Irish writer who's been based in the United States for more than a decade. I'm finding myself more and more curious and concerned about how writers should respond to the realities and fictions of the Donald Trump presidency. I'm wondering how other writers see their role and responsibility and whether they feel their writing has been changed by the political earthquake in this country. I'll speak to the Russian-American novelist Gary Steingart about his new novel, Lake Success, and I'll reflect a little on my own writing challenges in the era of alternative facts. But first I'm joined by two very different novelists to discuss their new work in the context of today's America. Crystal Hannah Kim's debut novel, If You Leave Me, centers on a love triangle among three young refugees in South Korea during the Forgotten War of the 1950s. Mark Doton's new novel, his second, is called Trump Sky Alpha. Twice a week, the president pilots his ultra-luxury airship, streaming YouTube addresses to the nation, taking down his enemies, and bigging up his successes. Mark, let's start with this giant blimp piloted by Trump. It's satirical, and maybe it seemed far-fetched and grotesque when you were writing, but it now seems unnervingly possible. Yeah, I wrote that piece after the election, but before the inauguration. And the idea was, at that point, one of the main concerns about Trump was his grifting, essentially that he was going to use his D.C. Trump Hotel and other hotels. Foreign governments, businesses would book big suites of rooms there and pay him lots of money, and that would be a way of, of, you know, currying influence with the Trump administration, which is, of course, precisely what's happened. So having an entire fleet of Trump-branded Uh, Zeppelins across the world was to me something I I didn't think reality would catch up to that before the book uh, came out and it hasn't yet so that that was one of the things I was thinking about is what can I include here that even Trump isn't going to be able to get ahead of before February when my book comes out so Mark we have to hear a section of Trump Sky Alpha can you read us a little In this section from the opening chapter of my book, Trump has been told by the Secret Service that he cannot get into a Zeppelin. He loves his Zeppelin so much, it's his chance to get up in the air, tell his side of the story, to give a streaming YouTube address. And so at the point that we, that I'm going to be reading, Secret Service agents are rushing to stop him from getting on board his Zeppelin and he's fighting them off. Trump had been told there would be no takeoff today, not at the start of World War III, didn't he understand? Trump's feet landing with concussive thuds as he ran up the stairs of his Zeppelin, two Secret Service agents trying to take him by the arm, but with shocking strength for an elderly, overweight man. Trump hurled them both off the gangway and pressed the button that closed it up behind him, three more agents actually grabbing onto mooring cables as the Zeppelin lifted off, struggling up their respective cables for a few seconds before plummeting to their deaths like losers, and that's what they were, total losers, Trump in his glassed-in enclosure, firing off a few quick tweets. Happy to be flying back to NYC. Beautiful night. Fake news media wrong as usual. Trump Sky Alpha rising above the National Mall. 
And across the world, the other Zeppelins in the fleet rose from their moorings, all of them linked together, all of them piloted by Trump. And as you're writing, do you, as you were writing this book, did you keep constant tabs on the headlines and on Twitter? I mean, did you have that window open all the time or do you just have to zone out and let your imagination do its work? I suspect that it would be very healthy to zone out and uh, let my imagination do its work, but I, I can't do that. I think like many of us, I'm completely addicted to, to Twitter. I'm buried in my Twitter feed all day. I'm, you know, I'm reading various blogs and news sources. And as the book went through the process of, of writing it and then, you know, being edited and typeset and so on, it, I kept altering things to put in new textures because Trump is so perpetually strange that he keeps saying things that are so bizarre and so Trump that I felt the need to, you know, keep knitting these things in. And finally, the book now is, is done. I can't change it anymore. Crystal Hanakim. Your novel, If You Leave Me, centers on an all-too-real war, the Korean War of the 1950s. Now, your book was written before Trump's inauguration, but it is very timely considering U.S.-Korean relations recently. Uh, we'll talk about that relevance in a moment, but could you firstly tell me what drew you to writing about this particular era in Korean history? Well, I was drawn to writing about the Korean War because of my own family's history. All, of my, all four of my grandparents survived the Korean War, and growing up in the United States, there was such a stark contrast between what people around me knew about this war versus all of the stories that I've been hearing from my family growing up. And in America, the Korean War is called the Forgotten War. It's not something that is part of our consciousness. And so I thought it would be important to write about this Korean War and to give this context for readers. And I think that now, Considering our current socio-political context, it's incredibly important to read. I'd love you to read a little, perhaps from the beginning of the novel, uh, where we first meet Hemi, your central character. A year ago, when the 625 war between the North and South began, everyone in my country fled, propelled by confusion and news in the form of unexpected sounds, bullets, airplanes, the cries of the dying, the mothers, daughters, elders, and children of my hometown stampeded south, hitching ourselves onto trains, scrabbling up mountains, wading through paddies and treading rivers. Mother, Hyunggi, and I wore white and carried loads on our backs and on our heads. We walked until we reached the southeasternmost tip of our peninsula, where shelters gathered around markets and landmarks to form crude villages. All along the coast, people I knew from childhood lived crammed up against strangers. Most settled in the center of Busan, where houses and churches and schools and salvage structures packed the streets. Refugees thronged together as tight as bean sprouts, as if closeness and the East Sea equaled protection. So Hemi, your central character, is forced into a refugee camp with her mother and brother, and the poverty and vulnerability they endure there is unforgettably portrayed, I would say, in your book. How did you imagine your way into that experience? Well, I've always been interested in writing about those who have been marginalized, and I wanted to write about the woman's experience during the Korean War because I think that what I've read growing up has always been about the, the male narrative, the male soldiers at war. And so I did a lot of interviews with my grandmother, with my aunts, 
and I searched for memoirs. I did a lot of research to make sure that I could describe the refugee camp and describe the refugee experience for the reader. Crystal, I talked in my intro about the way that your novel seems timely because North Korea and U.S. relations with North Korea have been so much in the news. But how do you as an author feel about that kind of interpretation? Do you feel that Hemi's story has anything to do with the headlines and tweet storms we're seeing lately? Well, when I began writing this novel, Korea was not in the news. North Korea was not in the news. South Korea was not in the news. And what I think drew editors was this lack of awareness of of the history there. And now... I think the novel is coming out in a really timely moment when people are curious about what is happening between the United States, North Korea, and South Korea. And in order to understand the socio-political tensions there, I do think it's important for people to understand what happened during the Korean War and how foreign powers were involved in Korea's history and in the breaking up of North and South from the 1950s, because I think that that history is not often talked about. Mark, speaking of aftermath, um, Trump's outbursts quickly lead to a nuclear war in which 90% of the world's population is wiped out. Lovely. But in the aftermath, uh, your character Rachel, a journalist who has lost her wife and daughter in the blast, she embarks on a project of research into what what remains of the internet, um, how online life laid the foundations for political and societal disaster. Tell me about the character of Rachel. Was it important to you to weave a character with a personal story through the pretty manic fabric of the novel? Was that to ground it or to humanize it? Yeah, I I started out with the idea of what would social media look like in the last hours of the world if there was some terrible apocalyptic event like the one that the book describes. And then for me, the, the Trump sections are so broad and they're, you know, Comic, they're serious, but they're comical too. You know, Trump is a a blowhard. He's a idiot who thinks he's a genius. He's David Brent or Michael Scott, but much more cruel and narcissistic. I mean, even more narcissistic. And he has a nuclear arsenal at his disposal. I wanted to have it grounded as well in the you know the human costs of Trump's action. So Rachel is someone who is, uh, you know, where Trump is reactive. She is extremely reserved. She is in a phase of grief. She lost her wife and daughter. And I I did find the counterpoint between, you know, these two poles of Trump on the one hand and Rachel, the sort of cold, steely, cerebral journalist, uh, was what made the novel balance out for me. In a way, I feel as though this presidency and this administration has made timely so many types of fiction, fiction, any kind of fiction that's about suffering or, or war or fear or um, arrogance even seems timely in, in, in a new way. You're both editors, Mark, you're an editor at Soho Press and you're, Crystal, you're a contributing editor at, at Apogee Journal. Do you see that kind of timeliness that we're talking about in the fiction that's coming in on submission to the press, Mark, and to the journal, Crystal? What are, what are people, how are people responding to this moment in American history? I think that there's a lot of interest in stories that have not traditionally been told. I think there was a, you know, a long era of American fiction where a lot of it was written by, you know, straight white men about, let's say, broadly speaking, people having affairs in the suburbs. People will continue to write those books, and of course, some of them can be very good. But there's a much greater interest, which I, I feel as an editor, in, in terms of what, what people want right now in, in, story, in stories that look at groups like, you know, immigrant communities, 
queer experiences, issues of, of you know, race, class, sexuality that may have been elided in the past are at the forefront now. And I think, you know, some people find this, you know, a, an unfortunate political turn. And I think, you know, the, whatever the subject matter, it's always political. If you choose not to engage explicitly with these types of issues, that's a political choice as well. I agree. I think writing is always political. And Apogee Journal's mission is to provide a platform for marginalized voices and marginalized topics. Since Trump's inauguration, we have had a huge influx in submissions. There's a greater urgency to write about these issues, and we feel a greater urgency to publish more. I think there's also a greater need for people to empathize because Trump alienates and others so many categories and groups of people. And I think the way that writers are trying to increase empathy in the world is through their prose or their poetry. At the same time, I was actually just talking to my editor, a co-editor of mine, who said that we have just recently received a batch of white supremacist poems. Really? Yeah. So I think that there's that unfortunate response as well, but it's a small minority. Crystal, what you've just said in a way answers my final question, which is to both of you, but it's, do you as writers ever feel powerless in the face of what's happening in this country? As writers, we respond and we try to illuminate, but publishing is slow and history is rapid. And sometimes I wonder how useful stories are in a society in which truth is so often under attack and terrible things are happening to real people. Well, I think that fiction and stories are a wonderful way for readers to empathize with people rather than thinking about a topic or a war or a country in in broad terms. So I do think that that's necessary. Fiction is necessary for that. But I've also found myself writing more essays because they're shorter, I can publish them quicker, and they can be more pointed in, in my message as a way to write more politically. I feel powerless all the time. I think, you know, my writing feels useless to one side uh, a lot of the time. And, and, you know, I'm operating from a place of just spectating this horrible crisis that we're in the middle of. And, you know, the, the opening chapter of this novel, the Zeppelin's chapter, was written in just a sense of impotent rage. You know, after the election, when nothing could stop Trump's inauguration, I do feel very powerless a lot of the time. And I think channeling that those feelings into fiction is maybe, you know, the best I can do. And even if it's not useful, maybe it produces a good book. Trump Sky Alpha by Mark Doton will be published next spring by Grey Wolf Press. Let's hope it still seems far-fetched by then. And Crystal Hannah Kim's If You Leave Me will be available on 20th September from William Morrow, an imprint of HarperCollins Publishers. We are using the word beyond a lot in my house lately. It's just beyond, I say to my husband almost every day now, sometimes several times a day, depending on the news. We're in America, you see, and for a while, mid-2016, say, the expression was beyond belief as we watched what was happening in the presidential election. Then beyond words as the first year of the Trump administration rolled out with its travel ban and its re-election rallies and its constant volatile tweet storms with its alternative facts and its press secretary in the bushes. Sometimes it was almost funny, 
But now it's merely beyond. It's an unfinished sentence, a response abandoned in midair. Have we given up? Is it more a case of, of which we cannot speak, we must be silent? Or of silence is complicity? Words don't seem enough. In our offices in the mornings, we greet each other with the words, did you see? Did you hear? But I'm finding more and more that we rarely go beyond those questions, those invitations to acknowledge together that this is not normal. We mostly just drift off and shake our heads and turn back to the things of our days. Not everyone is like this. There are people making phone calls to Congress every day. There are marches, protests, online groups working tirelessly, for instance, to help reunite families separated at the border. There are things we can do. But for those of us who are writers, what I have found myself wondering over the past two years is, should we just be doing? Should we only be organizing, protesting, fundraising, helping, taking concrete steps to do something? Is it justifiable to sit at home making worlds out of words when, in the world we walk through, words have become a form of warfare, darting and dissembling too rapidly to even comprise a substantial news cycle, even when the word in question might be, say, the N-word, and the question that of whether the sitting US president has used it, even used it habitually? More and more, it seems, the words don't matter. The lies don't matter. The lies don't seem to do anything other than to pave the way for the expression and amplification of still more lies. And that is the way that a language is punctured, that words start to feel already, even before you utter them, let alone compose them, beyond. The poet C.D. Wright wrote that the word used wrongly distorts the world. A world distorted by wrong words, by wronged words. That is what every morning feels like now in America. Normality, possibility, plausibility distorted several times over and masticated back through itself like a spit-logged scrap of paper. Until you can't help it, you start to look away. Well, we can't look away. Those of us who are trying to write in this time, we certainly can't look away. We have to find the words beyond, beyond. But I still doubt that that is enough to be doing. I'm now joined by Gary Steingart. You've published four novels. Your last novel was Super Sad Love Story, which predicted many of the horrors of the current age with chilling accuracy. Your new novel, Lake Success, focuses on a self-obsessed hedge fund manager called Barry Cohen, who freaks out and bails on his marriage, his son, and his job. Well, Barry is, I guess the Yiddish word is schmuck. You know, he's a complete schmuck, which means he's uh, not a great person. But he also doesn't really know how to deal with the world around him. Uh, the novel takes place in 2016 as uh, Donald Trump makes his first appearance in America. And, but the book is really about family. What is it? What, what are the bonds that hold us close? Uh, and Barry grew up in a way with a very horrifying family and had never really learned how to interact with people and to 
to interact with people, he taught himself these so-called friend moves as a kid, these moves that helped him interact with people. And his son is uh, on the severe end of the autistic spectrum. And the journey Barry undertakes is across a changing America in 2016, but it's also about a changing Barry. Um, I'm not going to say that this is a novel of redemption, but I don't like to just swat my characters down, even the stupidest characters. I'd like to give them a little hope, even if the tragedy and the tragic comedy of it is that their hope doesn't really become fulfilled. So Gary, would you read us a little from Lake Success? It'll introduce us to Barry. Barry Cohen, a man with $2.4 billion of assets under management, staggered into the Port Authority bus terminal. He was visibly drunk and bleeding. There was a clean slice above his left brow where the nanny's fingernail had gouged him, and from his wife, a teardrop scratch below his eye. It was 3.20 a.m. The last time he had been to the Port Authority was 24 years ago. He had gone on a bus trip to Richmond, Virginia to see his college girlfriend. That youthful bus ride unspooled in his mind whenever the S&P was crushing him or whenever he would discover a new and terrible fact about his son's condition. When Barry closed his eyes, he could picture the sweep of the highway, his country calling out to him from both sides of the road. He could feel himself sitting on a hard wooden bench at some roadside shack. A thick woman with a crab-like walk and many stories to tell would bring him a plate of vinegary beans and pulled pork. They would talk as equals about where their lives went wrong, and she would waive the price of the meal, and he would pay for it anyway. And she would say, thank you, Barry because despite the vast difference in their assets under management, they would already be on a first-name basis. So you wrote the book in the second half of 2016, and you said it in that year also, um, before the presidential election and after. So there must have been a moment when you realized, well, this is a novel of 2016, and therefore, in some way, a novel of Trump. Well, I, I got a directive from my editor saying, please don't use the T word uh, more than six or seven times. I got her up to 12, but we definitely cut a lot of the T word. Um, yeah, look, when I started the novel in around June and I got on the Greyhound bus in New York, I actually did this journey by bus across the country as well. I got on the bus in June. I got off in September. Uh, when I got on the bus in June, I thought, well, there's no way in hell um, you know, Hillary's going to lose this one. Um, it's obviously going to be a Clinton presidency. When I got off the bus in San Diego in September, I was starting to price you know, Montreal real estate because I was like, I got to get the hell out of this country. Um, it was shocking, but I think people along the way, both on the bus and off, kept telling me that you know, he, he's going to win. And they were very specific about it. He's going to win Pennsylvania, which I thought, well, come on, you people are crazy. There's no way he's going to win Pennsylvania. That's a solidly democratic state. Uh, but he did win it. And the people on the bus knew more about America than the people on the east and west coast that I had left. So to me, it was a real eye-opener. I mean, I think, you know, uh, this book was written in a very journalistic vein. A lot of it is a kind of journalism, me talking to people on the bus and off. And what I learned was that we can't just write about this country from a New York perspective. Uh, we have to travel the, the length and breadth of it. It really seems to me that empathy is a massive part of how and why you wrote this novel. Empathy with the people that you met on the Greyhound uh, bus on that long tour across um, the South. Um, and with Barry, of course. You also had to immerse yourself in the hedge fund world to, to, get, to get this guy. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it was, it was a great world to immerse myself in. I mean, one of the reasons I wrote this book with a hedge funder in mind is 
I don't have any friends left in New York. You know, they're all upstate or in Berlin or where, and people can't afford to live here. This is a city of just finance people now and the people who love them, you know. So, but I did get to know a lot of hedge funders over three years. Some of them were very nice. Um, some of them were absolutely scary and you could sort of see the connection between the rise of the way the nativist movement was, few, was financed by so many of these people. Um, but it's always, there's always, you know, Barry's completely disconnected from the world, and this sense of disconnection was there throughout. I mean, at first I met this uh, currency trader, middle-aged guy, um, who was complaining about the play of the middle class, and I said, I, I get it, yeah, I hear you, and he said, because I'm the middle class. And I said, how do you define the middle class? And he said, well, just people struggling, earning between two and four million dollars a year, you know, and, and that is the perception. The perception is, you know, you're never rich enough. There's always some new, and we're all paying the price for that because we, and look at, you know, the, the tax changes under Trump. All this money is basically more money is being funneled toward people who are not even made happy by that money. It's a net loss for the whole society. Gary, I feel that with this novel, you've done your due diligence as a writer in the age of Trump, but um, lots of writers are are flailing a little and not quite sure what the role of the writer is in a country in, in which this is happening. What are your thoughts on that? And how does it change? It's a really tough dilemma. Although when we look back historically, so many of the best works of fiction were written at times of great tension uh, and great uncertainty whether you know, human civilization would even continue. But it is really tough because, you know, the question, uh, many novelists, of course, write about private things. And, and the things that interest me the most are private things, uh, relationships, families, romance, uh, um, you know, uh, just the way we interact with each other. But what happens when there's a big, giant orange thing in the room that's there, that's present there all the time? And I, I mean, I'm sure listeners in, in Ireland feel the Trump effect, but we are subsumed by this you know uh, we are and, and we do it to ourselves you know we don't get off twitter we, we, we we're it's like we're we're getting this we're mainlining this horrible drug that has no benefits doesn't make us happier uh makes us angrier doesn't make us interact with anyone else in, in a healthier way but we can't stop and 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 we if we do stop we risk letting him get away with everything he wants to do. It's a completely screwed up situation. So we have to be vigilant. And it, but as writers, we also have to, our goal is always to transform things into art as much as we can. This book, I feel, really did have a hugely journalistic quality. And I say that with huge respect for journalists. But so much of this is overheard stuff fashioned into a narrative that hopefully is artistic and intent and, and, and an outcome. But it's a tough time, but we have to do it. As much as we hate it, we all have to you know, get our writing fingers calloused and, and really wade into the muck of things, but also to perk up our ears and listen to everything everyone's saying. Even though what we hear is so disturbing, so distressing, we want to shut the ears of our little kids, but we ourselves have to keep listening. And keep listening we will. Thanks, Gary. And in the meantime, you can read Lake Success by Gary Steingart, which is published by Hamish Hamilton. That's it from Trump's America and The Book Show. The show was produced by Zoe Cummins.